Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasiliga, Director of the Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this episode on COVID-19. COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges over the past years. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2021 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these lessons learned into your practice as we all do our part in caring for our patients. My name is Molly Bilstein-Lieber, and this is Telehealth in Small and Rural Hospitals, Pandemic Acceleration and Beyond. Joining me are my co-presenters, Stephanie Kaiser, Director of Rural Health and Interprofessional Clinical Education Professor at the practice of the UNC Eshelman School of Mountain Area Health Education Center, Kirsten Stone, the Senior Manager, Ambulatory Clinical Pharmacy at Essentia Health Ambulatory Pharmacy Services, and Rebecca Gramby, Director of Pharmacotherapy at MAEHC Family Medicine. Um, let's unpack the types of telehealth. Often, you know, we've heard these terms thrown around a lot this year because so many of us have been living in the COVID virtual world. But that first definition is asynchronous, which means we're providing education or care, but we're not really doing it in real time with the patient at that moment. So it may be a recording. It may be something stored for future use or reference. Um, for those of us in academia, we're very familiar with asynchronous, you know, where we offload education and then um, view it later. We're going to be doing that with ASHP. This is going to be an asynchronous, you know, uh, presentation. The second one is synchronous care. And I think this is the one that we very much think about with telehealth services because it's having the patient either on the phone or on the video with us in real time so that we can, you know, diagnose, treat, educate, um, and get things resolved in person. Um, the third is just around sort of, you know, there's a lot happening in the digital health world and remote patient monitoring is significantly booming. Um, all types of devices are out there. The ones that we're probably most commonly, so, you know, we use the most are probably, you know, CGM, so continuous glucose monitoring. Some of us may be familiar with digital scales that are used in the home and transmit data for the folks experiencing heart failure. Um, but I have uh, recently learned about a great resource who's a pharmacist, the digital apothecary. Um, this is someone who is actually testing a lot of devices. So if you're just curious about what's on the market and want to hear from a, a real live pharmacist who's trying to kind of figure out what tools are out there for us, that might be someone to kind of follow on Twitter or follow his blogs. Um, and then mHealth, and this is that evolving space with smartphones. So how you can use a smartphone um, or maybe even a smartwatch. You know, a lot of things are coming out around Apple Watches and detecting changes in heart rhythm and actually identifying arrhythmias earlier, sooner with patients. So again, how can we use smartphones for, um, and, you know, evaluating, but then how can we also use that smartphone as a motivator? So how can we send messages to patients, reminders to patients, using that smartphone technology. So those are kind of those four key definitions I wanted us to touch on. And then let's talk about some of those common telehealth barriers. Probably many of you immediately said, hey, we don't all have high-speed data access. Especially, you know, we designed this session to be particularly offered for the rural, small and rural hospital track. 
um, because this is where this conversation came up is in our small and rural um, advisory group. The group really wanted us to present something around telehealth and how can we do that better and how can we learn more about that for our small and rural hospital providers. Um, again, shortages of those video-enabled devices. I know that's surprising, you know, maybe when I put this slide deck together, but certainly not surprising now because things are stuck on container ships and we don't have enough of the devices to go out into communities. Um, digital literacy. So we all walk around with smartphones in our hands, but many folks do not know how to navigate um, connecting the video or connecting the, um, the sound and then getting onto a portal and connecting with their physician office. So digital literacy um, is definitely a barrier, especially for some of our older adults um, in communities that just use that smartphone strictly for talking on the phone. Lack of capacity and infrastructure, and that includes policy and reimbursement. So COVID flung us all into the telehealth space immediately and the infrastructure was not there, policy changes were not there. Certainly they have rapidly evolved um, over time. The, the platform security, the ease of use, how to navigate it, and then lastly, something we're all still dealing with are workforce shortages and training. So how do we train our folks and practices to be proficient with these devices? So the last few slides are really about, um, well, I wanted to do this one and then the resources, but telehealth waivers from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So this is how things started moving very quickly. So again, that you could conduct telehealth with patients that don't just live in designated rural areas, that you could practice remote care even across state lines. Those were things that were not in place before COVID that you could deliver that care to both new and established patients, that you could bill for those services for both video and audio only, again, something that wasn't in place before COVID, and then just, again, that massive expansion of telehealth services. So my last few things are just to let you know about some of the great resources that are out there. Telehealthhhs.gov. Strongly encourage you to take a look at that site. They have information for patients and providers. The next, for those of us that are practicing and living in rural communities, there's a fantastic rural telehealth toolkit um, that takes into account sort of the things we deal with in rural settings. And then lastly, ASHP, they have fantastic resources. Telehealth 101, updates on advocacy happening in the space, telehealth practice resources, and even technology information and user guides. So our organization is supporting us in this space, and I want to hand it over to Dr. Rebecca Grandy, who's going to tell us about her real-world experience with being launched into telehealth in times of COVID. Hello, everyone. My name is Kirsten Stone. I'm the Senior Clinical Manager of Ambulatory Pharmacy Services at Essentia Health. I'm excited to be here today to share our journey and experiences in providing care through telepharmacy at Essentia Health. Essentia Health is an integrated health system serving patients in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and North Dakota. Headquartered in Duluth, Minnesota, Essentia Health combines the strengths and talents of over 14,000 employees, including more than 2,000 physicians and advanced practitioners who serve our patients and communities through the mission of being called to make a healthy difference in people's lives. Essentia Health, which includes many Catholic facilities, is guided by the values of quality, 
hospitality, respect, joy, justice, stewardship, and teamwork. Essential Health lives out its mission by having a patient-centered focus at 14 hospitals, 71 clinics, 23 pharmacies, six long-term care facilities, three independent living facilities, five ambulance services, and one research institute. The locations marked with blue stars on this map represent the clinics currently offering face-to-face -face medication therapy management, or MTM services. We also refer to our broad MTM services as ambulatory clinical pharmacy services. Without telepharmacy, these locations would be the only locations that patients and providers could benefit from our ambulatory clinical pharmacy services. As you will see, I will refer back to this map a few times through this presentation. Our Essentia MTM program at Essentia started in 2004 with a PGY1 ambulatory pharmacy residency program originating in Duluth and has expanded over time. Our pharmacist clinicians assist patients and providers in optimizing medication therapies to achieve optimal health outcomes and address medication-related concerns. To align with organizational strategies, the work of our department is prioritized in three different buckets. Comprehensive medication reviews, primarily focused on polypharmacy and affordability, hospital follow-up visits for transitional care management, or TCM services, and lastly, chronic disease management, specifically diabetes, hypertension, and opioid tapering. We have recently started exploring and offering pharmacogenomic services this past year as well. We are currently a small but mighty clinical pharmacy department with 4.2 FTE or full-time equivalent pharmacist clinicians, along with two PGY1 ambulatory care residents and one billing and scheduling coordinator. We are physically located in one internal medicine clinic and five family practice clinics. Our broad geographic footprint serves as both an opportunity and a challenge for spreading our services in a consistent manner to all parts of our regions. Fortunately, telepharmacy has made this a possibility. Phase one of telehealth at Essentia started in 2012. Telehealth services were offered for those specialty services that were not uniformly available at all clinics across the organization. Once referred, patients were scheduled for a TCON appointment, typically an hour in length, that would be completed in an exam room at the patient's own local clinic. We refer to the clinic where the patient is located as the originating site. Each originating site has its own telehealth cart pictured on the left, which contained a computer, video camera, and speakers. Each telehealth cart owned its own schedule as well. Therefore, a patient would be placed on two schedules for each visit, one on the provider schedule and one on the telehealth cart schedule. Once the patient arrived at their clinic, they would be roomed by clinic staff, typically a nurse, and brought into a patient exam room. The rooming nurse would take necessary vitals and start the connection with the provider. Before leaving the room, the nurse would make an introduction to both the patient and the provider and ensure a working connection. On the other side of the line, the provider was located at their home clinic. This site is referred to as the distant clinic. The provider is usually able to use their office computer to complete the visit. 
Although sometimes clunky, this process was a new means for patients to be able to receive services not previously offered at their own local clinic. A few of the difficulties we experienced at that time included connectivity problems, timing, sometimes the patient would be ready to connect but not the provider, or vice versa. Tracking was also difficult and managing two schedules, one for the provider and one for the equipment. Here you can see the growth of telehealth services at Essentia over a five-year time span. The goal of telehealth phase one was to have telehealth capabilities in every Essentia clinic, hospital, and nursing home. Essentia's telehealth visits grew annually with nearly 5,000 com visits completed in year five and included over 350 telehealth providers. Services were wide and ranged from allergy to chronic pain, medical weight loss to infectious disease, speech, and behavioral health. Ambulatory Pharmacy joined in the fund in 2015 with our Essentia Health COAT program. COAT, or Chronic Opioid Analgesic Therapy, was Essentia's big initiative to help battle the national opioid epidemic. With the goal of minimizing the number of new chronic pain patients started on opioids and reducing diversion and the abuse of opioids prescribed by Essentia providers and advanced practitioners, our pharmacist clinicians were necessary for assisting in the tapering and discontinuing of high-dosed or inappropriately prescribed opioids. It was at this time that we were able to spread organizationally our first well-established PharmD collaborative practice agreement for opioid tapering and discontinuing. Let's go back to the map. In 2015, we had only four physical face-to-face -face MTM locations again represented by the blue stars on this map. As you can see, we are a small group with very limited patient access. We had only 1.8 FTE spread across four clinic locations. You will also notice that all four of these locations were centralized in the same area which services were started. There was little organizational awareness of our ambulatory clinical pharmacy services at this time. Within one year, we nearly quadrupled our spread by providing services to nine new clinic locations, all supported through telepharmacy. These new locations are marked on the map with pink stars. Essentia was divided into three markets at this time, east, west, and central. With the addition of telepharmacy, this was the first time we were able to cross the market borders and offer services in our west market. I spared the map for the five-year display because all you would see were pink and blue stars representing MTM face-to-face -face and telehealth locations. What you can see on this chart is the expanded utilization of telepharmacy services after just five years. We now have 42 different clinics, some primary care and some specialty, that have referred patients to our services specifically for our opioid tapering and discontinuing program. One exciting point, is that not only the face-to-face -face clinics have the highest percentage of referrals, but other clinics. For example, Superior on this map with 13% and Hermantown at 4% currently do not have a pharmacist physically on site, but represent a large number of referrals. Fast forward to spring 2020. As we are all aware, COVID-19 hit in a worldwide epidemic. Not unlike other health systems, at Essentia, healthcare was turned upside down, 
Elective surgeries were canceled. Patients refused general medical care due to fear of exposure. Staffing levels were up and down. Some floors and facilities were understaffed, while some had employees that lost hours and suffered furloughs. For support and visibility, we chose to keep our pharmacist clinicians physically present in our clinics, but limit face-to-face visits. Fortunately for us, many of our payer registries allowed for telephonic visits. For those patients that split time at multiple locations, they were moved to one location, their primary location, and were to support the secondary location virtually. With so many hurdles in healthcare, it was now more than ever that patients and providers needed our pharmacy services. Thankfully, for telehealth phase two, this was quickly a possibility. With phase two, telehealth now included many options, many more options than the traditional TCON or clinic to clinic video technology we used in phase one. Patients could now complete an e-visit with a provider for specific conditions. Examples included, but were not limited to, allergies, colds, conjunctivitis, back pain, skin conditions, and UTIs. In this scenario, the patient fills out a short questionnaire, usually taking about five minutes. Answers are then reviewed by a provider who will make a diagnosis and create a personalized care plan. Virtual video visits were another option. For patients with smart devices and computers with visual capabilities, they could connect with the providers from the convenience of their own home. A wide range of virtual video appointments were available, including visits related to primary care, behavioral and mental health, substance abuse, orthopedics, physical therapy, and heart and vasculature. Lastly, virtual telephone visits were also an option. Less preferred than video visits, this was also the patient's way to connect to the provider while not having to leave their home. With all of the new options, Moda Visit was one of the many new reporting options we created at Essentia Health. For the first time, we were able to see the exact breakdown of visits, face-to-face, telehealth or virtual visits, and telephonic. For telepharmacy, telephonic visits have been by far the most prevalent with face-to-face a distant second and video virtual coming in third. With more patients getting vaccinated and feeling comfortable getting back into the clinic, we are seeing a slow but steady increase in the percentage of face-to-face visits. A year ago, we were sitting at only 12% face visits, and this past month, we saw over 21%. The most exciting and biggest impact we have seen with the implementation of telepharmacy is on workload. The yellow line on this first chart displays our growth over the past seven years in total encounters and encounters per FTE. As our team grew over time, it was expected to see an increase in annual visits. What stands out, though, is the distinct climb in encounters per FTE in 2020. Aligning in a similar fashion, our average visits per day in 2015, shortly after telehealth phase one, averaged only four visits per day per pharmacist. In 2020, we averaged 6.6. And now today, for the average in 2021, with a goal of eight visits per day, we are exceeding goal at 9.7 completed visits per day per pharmacist. The second chart is our productivity metric. We measure encounters per hour. Struggling to reach a goal of one encounter per hour prior to 2020, 
you can see another direct correlation and jump right around April of 2020. With the implementation of virtual visits, the metric immediately climbed and has remained above goal ever since. How did this happen? After the implementation of virtual visits in March 2020, we saw utilization and requests for our services grow immensely. We have also experienced a substantial decrease in no-show rates and a wider spread in services, including an increase in referrals for our chronic disease management. Lastly, we have been able to operationalize a process for standardized scheduling for high-risk discharge patients from our transitional care RN call team. Previously, the transitional care team did not want to take on scheduling of our visits because it would require them to differentiate between locations and what patients needed to be seen face-to-face and who needed to be seen telehealth. It was also a much easier sell to patients that could complete the visit from home, especially just after getting released from the hospital. We also did not need to worry about the availability and scheduling back-to-back visits with providers as we could complete our visits a few days prior. As mentioned in the previous slide, with the advancement of telepharmacy, we received more chronic disease management referrals and were able to create standard processes for our transitional care visits. You can see things changed and a big shift over time in the focus of services from the beginning in 2015 until now. In 2015, chronic disease management only accounted for 3.2% of our visits, and so far this year, it has grown to over 40%. Transitional care management visits also took a jump just this past year from 8.5% to 11.6%. And with the implementation and new standard processes, we expect to see this increase even more next year. While both chronic disease management and transitional care management services are growing, MTM services have gone from 85% to 40% this past year. My pharmacist will tell you that this has led to an increase in their job satisfaction with the variety of visits and longitudinal care of patients. As as pharmacists are able to see patients more routinely and share in set goals, they are able to see meaningful changes and build relationships with our patients. Who wouldn't value that? As previously mentioned, we noticed a significant jump in referrals this past year, plus a wider spread of referrals. Averaging around 600 referrals per year between 2018 and 2020, So far this year, we have had over 920 referrals year-to-date. I would anticipate this likely be nearly double the average by the end of the year. I also want to point out the spread and markets. East Market previously dominated as it was the initial MTM market. With growth and spread through telepharmacy, the West Market has jumped to over 30% of referrals. In recalling back to our first experience with telehealth phase one, one of the main concerns heard from my pharmacists and also providers was whether the patients would value the service as much. Would they truly be able to build a relationship with the patient and not be in the same room with them? Very quickly, the team realized that this concern was not really a concern at all. Success was seen in opioid tapers regardless of if the patient was physically in the same room or not. We have also seen a very positive patient satisfaction scores when comparing overall scores with telepharmacy. 
Satisfaction surveys are sent out to Essentia patients twice per year. We are able to separate these patients seen face-to-face via telehealth and telephone. The final question on the survey is an overall rating of the quality of care and services received from the pharmacist clinician. In looking at the past few surveys and combining the answers excellent and very good, the results are as follows. In 2020, pre-COVID, the overall score was 82.8% of patients felt the service was excellent or very good. 100% of the patients with visits over the telephone or virtually rated excellent and very good. In 2020, post-COVID, the overall score was 92.8%, 10% higher than the previous score, and again, 100% for virtual and phone visits. And for this past year, 2021, another slight increase of 93.2% patient satisfaction. Back to the first map I showed in the beginning of the presentation. The locations marked with blue stars on this map, again, represent the clinics currently offering face-to-face medication therapy management services. This map now includes our virtual spread across the organization. It is honestly fantastic and exciting that my small group of pharmacist clinicians have been able to offer ambulatory pharmacy services to this many locations and help so many more patients due to the growth of telepharmacy. Thank you so much for your time today and listening to our story of telepharmacy at Essentia Health. So um, that was Great to hear Dr. Stone's story. Our story at the Mountain Area Health Education Center has been very different. Um, So just to kind of give you a layout of what that has looked like, I'll start by telling you a little bit about our Mayheck Health Education Center. So we have um, family medicine, internal medicine, psychiatry, and OBGYN, and we've been lucky to have pharmacy um, at Mayheck or the Mountain Area Health Education Centers for over 20 years. So we have a strong tradition of pharmacy services there, Um, and we are located in Asheville, North Carolina, which if you're not familiar with Asheville, that's in the western part of the state, and it's a very rural area outside of that um, Asheville the city of Asheville, and we serve 16 counties in the western part of the state. So geographically, that's a very large area. Um, In those clinics, we provide a lot of the same services that Dr. Stone was talking about. We provide medication therapy management, a lot of chronic disease state management around diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, COPD. We offer some specialty clinics, which I'll tell you a little bit about later, do a lot of anti-coag management, and have really always done those things face-to-face. So prior to COVID, we were in a very different place with telemedicine compared to Dr. Stone's clinic. We essentially did none. So when I put 0% on here, it's, it's a little bit misleading because we did do some telehealth in the way it's defined. So, for example, if we had a patient who needed an insulin titration, but we didn't want to have to bring them back to clinic every single week, sure, we would call them on the phone and do a titration, but we didn't bill for it. It was not systematic. We were just doing it to provide good patient care. And then, as you all know, boom, in March of 2020, COVID happened, and essentially everyone in our organization that the organization felt did not have to be physically on site was sent home. And so that meant our 
entire pharmacy team was sent home. A lot of the medical providers were sent home and everything that we could was converted to telehealth. And so we had to figure out things really quickly. And a lot of the story I'm going to tell you today is how we did that. So the mistakes we made, the lessons we learned, the things that I really like about telehealth, because if I'm being completely honest, I was not excited. Um, you can stereotype me as a millennial. I'm technically on the cusp, but I was not excited about calling people on the phone all the time. It just wasn't something that I was looking forward to doing. But now, actually, I very much enjoy it. And I can tell you about sort of why that is. But so in April, we were 100 percent telehealth. And really from April until now, you can see we've transitioned and we're currently doing at the time I put the slides together about 10 percent telehealth. That includes video and phone. And so I can tell you kind of why that change has happened over time as we go through the slides. But really, it's been a matter of patient preference. And so I'm imagining our number will end up staying around 10 percent telehealth. So implementation of telehealth. So again, ours was very fast and furious and it was sort of forced upon us. We were all sent home in March. The biggest thing I can tell you is that if you're going to do telehealth, you know, hopefully now you would have a more <laughs> slower, intentional approach to it. But communication, of course, is always important. And across our organization, some people really like meetings, some people really like emails, some people like a combination of all the above. So we actually had weekly meetings, team meetings in the pharmacy department to check in to make sure everyone knew what was going on. There were organizational emails that were sent out weekly so people would accumulate all the information as it was coming out and send that out weekly. But I would say the most important thing is actually my last bullet point on here. And that was having a single source of truth. And I still think that's important with telehealth because as billing changes, documentation changes, it's nice to know I can go to a single place on our Internet and find the information I need and know that someone's going to update it. Um, when we first started, we were trying to figure out what technology we're, we, we were using. So, of course, we had phones. So we're all sent home. I have my cell phone. And at first I was just calling people on my phone. Right. And so my number, my personal number would show up. So there were some good things about that. You know, people, if I had to leave a message, were able to call me back. But a lot of times they wouldn't answer because it's a number they don't recognize. And then once they did figure out they could call and get in touch with me, um, I found myself triaging all kinds of things I did not want to have to triage. Right. Like, they needed just needed to be changed on the schedule or they were having nausea and needed to speak to a triage nurse. So then we shifted into using things like Doximity and Jabber. And those are just apps that allow you to call from your own personal cell phone. But it, the number shows up as if you're calling from the clinic. So we had much greater success with patients answering the phone and more streamlined processes for just triage and scheduling and communication with patients once we switched to that. Video. So what kind of videos were we using? Luckily, all of the providers in our clinics are given um, a laptop and all of them are equipped with a camera. So we didn't have to worry about that part, but we did have to think through, OK, what sort of platforms are we going to use? The one our clinic decided to go with is called MEND. Um, I can say in the beginning, that was very tricky, trying to get everyone to learn how to use MEND. And so we had lots of trainings. Again, we had those available online where people could watch. We had um, virtual trainings through WebEx. That's the platform we use for our meetings at my particular organization. And then if all else failed and I'm trying to get on a MEND with a patient and it doesn't work, 
then, you know, we were given sort of guidance on what we could try next. You know, sometimes we just did FaceTime with the patient or Doximity. You could just send a link to the patient. And then, you know, all, again, if all else fails, you just go to a traditional phone and you call. Because a lot of our patients in rural communities may or may not have video capabilities. Or as Ms. Kaiser was saying, even if they have a video on their phone, they have no idea how to use it. So selecting that technology, you know, there was a lot of trial and error, but eventually what we kind of settled on is we use a lot of Doximity for our phone and we use MEND for our video. Um, and then having that single source of truth is something that I would recommend to anyone in any organization for when things are changing quickly. The other thing we had to decide on is what does the schedule look like? So when we were 100% telehealth, that was really easy, right? We had our usual pharmacy clinic schedules because we had always seen patients individually, sometimes as co-visits, and that entire schedule was just telehealth. But as we started into a more blended model, it got more complicated, and we tried lots of different things. I'm not saying that we found a perfect solution, and everything has pros and cons. So just some things to think about. Um, one model we tried was to have certain clinics that were all telehealth and then other clinics that were all in person. And then if you were on your telehealth day, you know, we had flexibility and were actually encouraged to work off site just to decrease exposure. And then if you were in office, you knew you were coming in office to see patients. But it, ultimately what would happen is that if I'm assigned to clinic on a Monday morning and I'm doing telehealth from home, there's a patient who urgently needs to be seen that's in the clinic on a Monday morning, and I get an in-person clinic um, appointment added to my schedule. So, of course, that's less than ideal, and there was a lot of um, juggling and calling people and trying to find coverage. So then we switched to sort of a blended model, and this included our providers, our physician providers and APPs as well, to where we would have a schedule that had some in office and then some pre-specified telehealth. That was really difficult for our schedulers. And so ultimately what we did is we scrapped it. We just had one central pharmacy clinic schedule and we have a pharmacy clinic every half day of the week in our clinics. And then patients could be put on there for in-office appointments or telehealth. So we do a blended model. So in a given day, we have 10 appointment slots per half day. So the majority of those, you know, around eight of them are in person and the other two usually we're doing by telehealth, whether it's by phone or by video. So I think the point of that is to say it's something to consider and there's no one right way that's going to work for every organization or even every provider. And so allowing some flexibility in that can be really helpful. The other thing that we experienced that we didn't think through again because we were implementing this all on the hills of COVID was reminder calls and texts that go out to our patients. So if our patients are put on the schedule, they get a reminder call or text telling them about that appointment. Well, in the beginning, unfortunately, those reminder calls and texts made it seem like telehealth appointments were actually in-person appointments. So we had people showing up at the office expecting to be seen in person. The provider was off-site. And so we had a lot of people who were really less than satisfied in that experience. And so we had to work with our IT and scheduling just to make sure that we were being consistent in the type of appointments we were scheduling and then what that meant on the back end for those reminder phone calls. So finally, we have the schedule, the patient gets there, whether they're still at their home or they're in the clinic, you know, what does that visit really look like? I will say the biggest thing, and this is still true today, even though it's much better than it was a year ago, is just flexibility. You know, I can't tell you how many times like I start out 
um, trying to do a visit by video and I can't get it to work or the patient can't get it to work. You know, it goes both ways. And then we switch to phone or, you know, if I have a no show in the clinic that's supposed to come in person, I just call them up on the phone, you know, and usually I can get them and we're able to conduct that visit. So usually just trying to work with whatever you think is going to be best for patient care. The other consideration is how do you do remote monitoring, especially of vitals and data that we need? So luckily, when COVID happened, a lot of insurances started providing a benefit for blood pressure monitors. Um, In North Carolina, Medicaid did start doing that. So we were able to send prescriptions to pharmacies and patients could get those monitors for free. And if you're using a video a synchronous video visit, you can actually have the patient show you what their blood pressure is. You can record it in your chart and then insurances and ACOs accept that as part of your quality measures. The other thing that's really nice is, you know, for blood glucose readings, we were able to get a lot of our folks continuous glucose monitors or CGMs. Medicare waived a lot of their more stringent requirements for that. And so we could get our patients Dexcoms or Freestyle Libre 2s or, you know, whatever device their insurance covered could connect them to the cloud. And then we're able to monitor that and really see and better able to manage their diabetes than we had ever been able to in the past. Um, The other thing that comes up a lot in telehealth is how do you triage a need for an in-office appointment? And so I think that's important to talk about with your team, too. Usually, if we're on site in pharmacy clinic and seeing patients in person, it's really easy because we have physicians everywhere and I can ask someone to come into the room. That's not true, of course, in telehealth. And so trying to figure out what that process and workflow looks like will be really important for your organization. So billing. So I feel like this is the million dollar question in pharmacy. So in full disclosure, this disclaimer here, what I'm going to tell you is very much based on your state laws and also your institutional comfort. So Dr. Stone and I, you know, who presented before me, were discussing this and what her institution allows and my institution allows are actually different. And so we're trying to help each other out to be able to optimize our billing. Um, In North Carolina, some of our billing is around the fact that we're able to become CPPs or clinical pharmacist practitioners. And that's um, our official designation that gives us collaborative practice agreement abilities in North Carolina. But that's how we're able to bill. The other piece of advice I would give anyone wanting to start telehealth is that you need to work really closely with your um, coding and auditors around the billing piece. And I'll show you sort of some of the tools that we've used to do that. But when we first started and really even now, they audit a portion of our notes to make sure we're documenting properly to support the billing that we're doing in this new telehealth world. So for billing, video visits are actually really easy. And so what that means is those synchronous video visits that Ms. Kaiser referred to where you can actually see the person in real time. And for us, as long as you're doing a video visit, you can bill everything just like you normally would. So we do traditional E&M codes or what they call incident two. So we use our CPT2 codes 99211 for almost everybody with the exception of Medicaid. So if we do INR checks or insulin titrations, medication management, med access, whatever it happens to be, we bill that 99211. In North Carolina, if you have that CPP designation and you're credentialed, you're able to bill Medicaid patients at the level of service provided. So, again, we would bill our 99212s 
through 215s just like we normally would as long as you have the video component. Um, the other thing to mention is let's say you're in a video visit with a patient and after 10 minutes you get kicked off for some reason, you can't get it to work and you have to call them by phone. As long as you've made a good attempt to do a video visit, then you're still able to bill these codes as if the entire visit was done by video. Annual wellness visits. So I know a lot of folks, us included, have been financially sustainable because of our ability to do annual wellness visits. Those, if you do them through video, you can bill your G codes, that G0432 and G0439, just like you usually would. And then the, for those visits in particular, part of the requirements is that you do have vitals. So we would have to ask the patients to self-report or if they had had vitals done in office within the previous 12 months, that was enough to satisfy the Medicaid requirements. Where everything gets a lot more tricky is if you want to do phone visits. So unfortunately for a pharmacist in North Carolina with Medicaid, we weren't able to build anything by phone. So it's, it's, it's really interesting, right? So if they come into the office or we have video, we actually build the same level as a physician. If we have to do it by phone, we build nothing. So for our Medicaid patients, if they're able and it's still a patient-centered thing to do, we try to do video or in person. Um, Medicare is a little different. So there are phone encounter codes that you can use that are based on time. Our organization has given us permission to build those incident two. These were codes that we were not used to using. And so you can see those here, 99441 through 99443. So the important part about this when you're thinking about systems is that you have to track how long you're on the phone with a patient in order to build these. For some of our private insurances, you can see there um, these abbreviations stand for Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, Cigna, Humana. Even on the phone, you can bill it our incident to our 99211, just like we usually would. And then Medicare Advantage. We always try to keep a lookout for, for those particular plans because they can be a little different. And so our billing did clarify that AWVs that we do were okay by phone, but telehealth preferred. So the general theme is that most insurances prefer video. However, you all know since you're working with rural populations or hope to work with rural populations, that that's not always possible. So for us, the good news was is even though we shifted from in office to out of office um, after we got the systems in place our billing and our the financial implications really weren't that much different so in order to bill a telehealth you there's certain pieces of documentation that you have to have so the way our organi organization chose to approach this was by pulling something into our notes called a procedure code. It was a procedure code we didn't bill, but it prompted us to get all the information we needed so that that charge and billing could go through without any hiccups. So I'm gonna kind of share with you what that template looks like. But so the first piece on here is, did we receive verbal consent? So if you do telehealth with a patient, you have to get consent that they're aware that it's a visit, their insurance will be charged, and that whatever deductibles or coinsurance they have, that they might, those might be applicable. Did the, the phone, um, did the, well, excuse me, did the encounter take place over the phone? And if it did, how long? Again, the minutes were important, especially for the Medicare billing incident too. Or if it was um, a synchronous video platform, and you can see here, they even use those words, HIPAA compliant synchronous video form, you had to say which one you used.
They wanted to know what state the patient was in, where the patient was located, and the provider. And so our auditors who were checking along behind us were making sure this was done. And so if it wasn't, they would send us prompts to remind us to go back and fill it out so we could bill. The other thing, switching gears a little bit, the other thing that was really challenging to figure out for us was how do we incorporate learners into this new telehealth world? Um, I know there are several organizations that are doing remote learning and have done that for a long time, but that was new to us. And just to give you an idea of volume, I usually take about 10 to 12 um, students per year, and we usually have a range between second years, third years, and fourth year pharmacy students in addition to our residents. And so Honestly, it was just a lot of trial and error, and I did a lot of things wrong and learned a lot of things, and so I'll share a few of those. Um, the first thing that I tried to do was I was in my home doing my visits. I would have two learners usually with me who were also in their separate homes, and we would schedule a meeting in the morning to check in and pre-round on patients using a video platform, just like we usually would in office. That went really well. Then we divide up the schedule. The learners would call their assigned patients or either do video visits. When they were finished, they would end the visit by hanging up or stopping the video, then call me, check out with me, and then we would call the patient together. I learned that was a horrible way to do it, at least for me, because a lot of our patients, when I tried to call them back, I couldn't get in touch with them. And then it's like, well, the patient had 9R of 7. So, I, you know, and then I'm stuck in this scenario where I've gotten in touch with them, but wasn't able to give them the plan. And it took me a lot of time after clinic to track people down. And if I couldn't track them down, then I also I wasn't providing great patient care and I wasn't able to bill. So I quickly we quickly pivoted. And what we decided to do was that once a learner had a patient on the phone or on video, they actually just paused the visit. So on a phone, they could switch to a different line, call me, we would check out, and then they could merge the phone calls. I have to say, I'm very thankful for our students who are younger than I am, who taught me how to do all these things. And like, how do you make it work when you have multiple people in multiple locations that are trying to care for a patient? Um, the video is a little easier. So on the video, there's usually a way where you can add a person to your visit. So we would do that with co-visits a lot of times. We would add the physician in or add a nutritionist in. Again, you have to be mindful of um, bandwidth, though. I believe that's the right word, because sometimes if you added too many people and had too many videos, it would also cause um, a crash. So, again, trial and error. The other important thing that I learned is when you're precepting someone remotely and trying to do clinic remotely, scheduled check-in times are really important. So having time in the morning and time in the afternoon every day, kind of regardless of what's going on, just to touch base, make sure people are doing well. Um, HIPAA compliant technology, never really thought about it until we got an email from this from our organization that said Zoom that we were using at the time with the school was not the version we had was not HIPAA compliant. So we had to switch to WebEx because we were talking about patients using you know their names and disease states. And so that's something to consider when you're working with your learners and the platform that you have. So as you can tell, a lot of lessons learned, a lot of opportunities. And as I mentioned earlier, I did not enjoy talking to people on the phone. I much preferred seeing them in person, just like I would much prefer give, give this presentation to you live instead of to my own computer screen. But it is what it is. 
So some of the things that I've really enjoyed, though, about telehealth is flexibility of workspace. You know, as a single mom who was trying to keep everyone safe from COVID, being able to work from home um, and see patients and still provide good care, but also care for my children, you know, was really nice. Um, increased efficiency in charting. I was so much better at charting because while I had someone on the phone, especially if you're using a headset, I could do all my charting while I was talking to them and it didn't come across as rude, you know, because they can't see me and I'm still engaged. So at the end of clinics, I had almost all my charting done when we were fully telehealth. And that is not the case when we're not. Um, people can't leave behind their medication bottles and glucose logs, you know, when they're actually in their home, unlike when they come to the office. So I found being able to decide what medication patients were on or follow up on their blood sugar is actually much easier. And so kind of up until this point, I've talked about all the benefits to me. But really, the biggest thing, of course, for our patients is that increased access to care. Right. So patients don't have to take off of work just to come to a 30-minute appointment. They don't have to drive two hours and spend gas money and, you know, who knows what else to come to me to see an appointment. So that benefit about, you know, just allowing them to have the option to come do telehealth, even though, like I said, only 20, about 10, 20% of our patients choose that has been great. The other thing that I know we've all learned in COVID is just to have a good sense of humor. So we've gotten a lot of really funny stories um, out of telehealth. Um, some people like to smoke when they're on <laughs> screens for telehealth. We've had people who don't wear shirts when they come to their telehealth appointments or they're riding their lawnmowers while they're trying to talk to us on the phone. We're like, you know, no, no, that's not a good plan. Um, and, you know, and just trying to figure out the technology together with the patients, with other providers and having that good sense of humor. Um, you know, it's a bright side and everything. So some challenges I do want to mention. Um, the biggest reason that we only have about 10% face to or 10% telehealth now is because our patients wanted to come into the clinic. We had some people who just flat out refused. They wouldn't even tell us what they wanted to come to clinic for if they thought we were going to try to convert them to telehealth. This was especially true of our older adults who face a lot of social isolation. They just wanted to come and see real people. And I think now that COVID is, you know, it's, you know, I'm not really sure how to describe kind of where we are in our current moment, but I think people have that need and desire for face to face. And so we've had a lot of people who just want to come back. Um, as with most rural populations or populations that are underserved, you all know that it's really hard to get in touch with people and you call one phone number you think is going to work and it's been disconnected and you just have no way to get in touch with people. So just making sure that every contact you're asking them, OK, what's the best way to get in touch with you? The other thing we found that didn't really work well was high risk medication management. So in the beginning, we with our warfarin, we had people come in to the lab, do a brief appointment, get their INR, go back home. The INR was then sent to the pharmacy team and we called the patient to see how they were doing. Um, and a lot of times we couldn't get in touch with them. And of course, that was a huge issue, especially if their INR is out of range. So we've transitioned all those are in person now. Device and insulin teachings can be challenging, but we got really good at finding videos online and being able to share our screens with patients. Paperwork, completion of labs. I think this was one of the trickiest parts for us, especially labs that were associated with quality measures like an A1C or microalbumin, you know, getting people to come back in to provide good patient care because we have the labs, but also be able to report those measures to our ACO and other insurances. 
So what does the future look like for us? So I, we will always have some degree of telehealth moving forward, because as you all know, because you're in this session, um, that increased access to care and taking down some of those barriers like transportation or the ability to take off work and thinking through social determinants of health is so important. Um, for us, one of the things I'm most excited about, though, is telehealth has opened up a whole world of us being able to provide specialist care. So where I'm at, treatment of hep C, HIV, and providing PrEP is, is a relatively limited service, and people have to drive long distances. And even if they drive long distances, um, a lot of times they'll only be treated if they don't have an active substance use disorder. So there's a lot of access issues around those particular disease states. So at my clinic, we've developed a program where we're able to do those services completely through telehealth and provide those services to patients who aren't even our primary care patients. So really serving as a consult service. So that's been an exciting sort of consequence of telehealth. The other thing is mental health. I always had this idea that mental health through like being provided through telehealth would not be a good idea. And I always had this thought in my head. However, what COVID has shown our organization is that we have much better show rates for our behavioral health and therapists than we've ever had. And so they've done really well in this new telehealth model. And it seems to be, be going perfectly. Um, and kind of the next piece that Ms. Kaiser referenced is, you know, moving forward, there does need to be some advocacy around telehealth and billing and sustainability um, because we can bill, but, you know, as I was talking about before, if you call someone on the phone, you don't get the same reimbursements. And especially in rural areas, that may be the only option that we have. Thank you so much for joining us for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official or wherever you listen to your podcast and check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most updated developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all that you do. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.